Well, this past year, two sociologists from uh, Baylor University wrote a book called America's Four Gods. America's Four Gods. And it's a survey about what Americans think about God and specifically uh, two dimensions or two questions in this survey. Question number one or dimension number one, is God involved or is he distant? Is he active in the affairs of this world, in the affairs of our lives, or is he uh, just away, not present? Is God, is God involved or is he distant? And the second question of the second dimension is, is God judgmental or is he kind? Is he uh, critical or is he the punishing kind? Question number two, dimension number two. And on those two questions or issues, uh, four portraits emerge about how Americans see God, and here they are. First is the authoritative God, the authoritative God. Uh, This God is high on involvement and high on judgment, very highly active in the affairs of this world, and this God is is high on evaluating and, and critiquing his creation, the authoritative God. 31% of Americans surveyed, uh, according to these, uh, this book, believes that. Then there's the benevolent God. The benevolent God is very highly involved and not very judgmental at all. Low on judgment. High on involvement, low on judgment. The benevolent God, 24% of Americans surveyed believe this. Then there's the critical God. This God is not very involved at all. Because, you know, he's in the North Pole, doesn't have time to be here. He's not involved at all, and highly judgmental, highly critical. So, checking his list, checking it twice, all right? And, you know, he's distant, and he thinks, don't mess up. That's the critical God. 16% of Americans surveyed in our country believe this, which, you know, I'm surprised that even 16% would, but 16% do, Okay? And then there's the distant God. This is what I would call the Star Wars God, the may the force be with you God. This particular portrait of God is low on involvement, low on activity uh, in terms of the affairs of this world, and very low on you know, judgment uh, and, and critiquing, criticizing creation. And it's interesting, 24% Amer- of the Americans surveyed in this book believe that. So there you go, the authoritative God, the benevolent God, the critical God, the distant God. And this book really is not about God. The subtitle of the book is What Americans Believe About God and What That Says About Americans. It's really more about us than it is about God. And, and another significant portion of this book is that, you know, why does this matter? Well, because what we believe about God, the beliefs that we have about God, serve as a foundation for our other beliefs and values that have to do with everyday life. For instance, beliefs about life and the purpose of life. See, that, that's got to rest on something, and for us, it rests on what our view of God is not just life, but death. How do I interpret death? What is death about? Is it the end or is it the beginning? What is it? Then there's morality. There's sexuality. These issues uh, really rest on our view of God. Uh, Marriage, parenting, uh, how we 
think about money, how we think about the economy, how we think about the environment. All of this rests upon what we think about God. Is God authoritative? Is God benevolent? Is God critical? Is God distant? America's four gods. Now, when we gather here at Windsor, this is not the kind of church where you come and someone like me says, now, okay, what are you all most like? Which of these four camps are you all in? You know, which of these four labels do we stick on your forehead? Uh, This is not the kind of church that says, okay, well, you know, let's take a vote and whoever represents the most of these four, then that's what we'll talk about. (laughs) That's not who we are. See, really the question is not what do Americans say about God? The question we're most concerned with is what does God say about God? That's the best question. And what does God's word have to say about God? God's word is is our primary, is our truth source, Uh, 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 is the Supreme Court truth source in terms of what we learn about God. And that's why I was so encouraged by our passage of Scripture this morning because our passage of Scripture this morning does not concern itself with the authoritative God or the critical God or the distant God or the benevolent God. Our passage of Scripture this morning introduces us to the singing God. Did you hear that? Did you hear that when the Ramirez has read the scripture? The singing God, it's there. Let's turn to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah this morning and let's, let's become reacquainted with our singing God. Now Zephaniah is... Um, well, you'll find it on page 667 of your church Bibles. And, uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. I'm so glad it's on 667, verses 666. What pastor wants to introduce a passage of Scripture saying, turn to 666, will you? This is, <laughs> kind of... <laughs> Gives me the shivers just thinking about it. Why did they just leave that blank? Well, they didn't ask me. <laughs> in your Bible, you will find Zephaniah in your personal Bible. Just go to Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament and then back up three books and then you'll find Zephaniah. Not Zechariah, but Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3. And I want to pay particular attention to the the big idea verse in our scripture. And it's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. The song that we just sang is based on this, by the way. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love And there it is, he will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. Did you know that about our God? That he sings. He has a wonderful voice. 
and he is the singing God. And I couldn't help but think of uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Book 6, The Magician's Nephew, and the Christ figure Aslan, the lion, the great lion, Aslan, and and how Narnia was created. Do you remember how Narnia was created? Do you remember how Aslan created Narnia? Huh? A voice had begun to sing. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes it was coming out of the earth beneath. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune but it was beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise ever heard, so beautiful you could hardly bear it. Aslan Aslan sings Narnia into existence, and Zephaniah introduces us to the God who sings, who sings over us. Now, why does he sing over us? That's the question. Why does he sing over us? And what we learn in these verses is that God sings over us because of what he's done for us. God sings over us because of what he's done for us. Now, it's normal in a church service like this for someone like me, your minister, to stand up and to preach to the congregation telling the congregation, encouraging the congregation how important it is for you to do something great for God. It's normal for someone like me to stand up and to say, you know, what you all need to be doing is you need to show up at Salt and Light on Anthony Drive and and you need to be a part of helping the under-resourced with food and clothing, distribution, because you need to do something for God with your life. And it's, it's very normal for me to get up in this church service and to say something like, if we're going to be what God wants us to be, then you need to, you need to not only think about that stateside, you need to think about that internationally and be involved in one of our missions teams and go to the Dominican Republic or go to Peru and do something for God. Why? My goodness, it's normal for someone like me to stand up and say that, you know, you need to be teaching our toddlers and mentoring our middle schoolers and coaching our high schoolers because it's a part of what you need to be doing for God. It's normal for someone like me to stand up and preach through the book of James and say how we need to not just be hearers of the word but doers of the word and we need to balance the learning of God's word with the doing of God's word do something for God it's normal isn't it but I think today would be a good day at the risk of being totally misunderstood I think today would be a good day to tell you that God has not put you on this earth in order to do something for him. I think today, at the risk of being misunderstood, it would be a good day to tell you that your life is not about doing something for God. I think, at the risk of being misunderstood, it would be a good day to tell you that, that, that you do not exist to serve God. I think today, on this third Sunday of Advent, 
it would be a good day to say that in the new heavens and the new earth, when this life is over and when we enjoy life forever with God, it will be a life that features not our service and work and ministry for him, but rather it will be a day featuring his service and his ministry and his work on our behalf for his joy, for the glory of his son. Because that's exactly the picture that we see in Zephaniah chapter 3. Look at what God is doing in this passage of Scripture. Now, Zephaniah lived in the 7th century before Christ. He lived just before Israel was carted off to Babylon in exile. And God had been warning his people uh, through Prophets who lived on every social uh, status dimension in in Israel society. I mean, there were white-collar prophets, blue-collar prophets, academic prophets, redneck prophets. Uh, God's people were 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 layered with prophets, his prophets, and and these are part of what we see in the minor prophets. And and Zephaniah was a prophet saying over and over what all of God's to all, what all of God's prophets said you know if you don't turn back to God you're going to your society will no longer exist God will take you away and of course that's what happened but Zephaniah's words came before that happened God's pleading with his people and he's not only pleading with his people if you look through the short book of Zephaniah in the first two chapters, you'll see God's not only talking to Judah, God's talking to the surrounding nations that if they do not repent and turn to him, life as they know it will not exist anymore. But at the end of this prophecy, we are given a, a picture of what Zephaniah calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And on that day, look at what God is doing. My goodness, why? In chapter 3, verse 8, God gathers the kingdoms. Verse 9 says, God will purify his people. And he says he'll purify their speech. God, God will change his people's arrogant attitudes. Verse 11 there's a, there's a reversal of the Tower of Babel that's occurring here on the day of the Lord. You remember the Tower of Babel, that tower that was built out of human pride and arrogance, trying to, trying to build a tower that reached the heavens as a monument to human achievement, and God would have nothing to do with that. So what did he do to stop the project? Huh? He changed everybody's languages. And they scattered. Well, Zephaniah 3 tells of a day where there will be a reversal of that. There will be one language and people will stand shoulder to shoulder and their arrogant attitudes, which was what was driving the Tower of Babel, the arrogance will turn to humility at God's doing. Verse 15 says, God will be in the presence of his people. Verse 16, God will remove all fear from his people. And then in verses 18 and 19 and 20, the third person gets shifted to the first person. Do you see that? I will remove from you At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. Who's the I? The Lord. I will give them praise and honor. I will gather you. 
I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise. I will restore your fortunes before your very eyes. God sings over us because of all that he's done for us. Do you understand how outrageous these verses are? Do you understand how strange they were to those who first heard them? Because you see, Israel was surrounded by nations who had their own pagan, uh, idolatrous practices. And you see, their version of temple worship is, let's go through the motions, let's present the offerings in the hopes that we can manipulate the gods to bless us, that we can leverage through offerings and religious activity things that we want God to do for us, you see. I mean, that's, that's all the kinds of worship that existed other than Israel. And those practices still go on today. And Tim Roberts and I saw that in Nepal earlier this year. We went to the temples. We saw the sacrifices. We saw them spin the prayer wheels. We saw the prayer flags being waved. Why? With the sincere but erroneous belief that by doing enough religious activity, we can leverage and manipulate the gods to do what we want that God to do, you see. It still goes on today. And it still goes on in our country. At our temples, we have temples today. We just don't call them temples. We call them shopping malls. And we call them, you know, stadiums. And we call it Wall Street. And we call it beauty. And we call it money. And we call it materialism. Good things that become bad things when we make them God things. And this is not Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 shows us the almighty, all-sufficient God who is not an employer dependent on employees to make the business run. In Zephaniah chapter 3, God is not... In Zephaniah chapter 3, God is not looking for assistance. It, as one author put it, Zephaniah chapter 3 is not a help-wanted ad. It's a help-available ad. In Zephaniah chapter 3, God's not a talent scout trying to recruit a national championship team. <laughs> Rather, Zephaniah 3 shows us an unstoppable fullback ready to take the ball and run touchdowns for anyone who trusts him to win the game. That's what Zephaniah 3 shows us. Zephaniah 3 shows us the God who does not depend on us. Rather, we are the ones dependent on him. Now that's 7 I 3. And that's, I think, why the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and, and here it is, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. See? <laughs> you see, the God of the Bible, the God in Zephaniah chapter 3, is a singing God because he's a mighty God, not because of what we've done for him. God doesn't sing over us because of what we've done for him. He sings because of what he's done for us. He's mighty to save. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it this way. Um, C.S. Lewis once said that it, you know, it is no great thing for God to be the sovereign ruler of the universe. Now, now think about this with me for just a moment. You ever wonder, you know, I wonder how hard hard is it for God to do his job? I mean, because we think about our jobs, and we think about the most stressful jobs in our country, you know, what would they be? Uh, uh, one business magazine said that uh, uh, top stressful jobs in our country, number one, firefighting, top stressful job. Uh, number two, CEO of a large corporation, you know. Uh, being president of the United States, incredibly stressful Incredibly difficult. Uh, being a, a surgeon, all right, very stressful. You're holding sharp objects in your hands. You know? So you've got all these stressful jobs, all right? We think, God, you know, wow, to, 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 to sustain this incredibly complex universe, God, how, how hard, how hard is it for you to do that? And you know what God's answer is? Not very. Not, it's not very hard. <laughs> you know, from our view, we fret and we stress over what's on our plate. You know, we're juggling work and we're juggling family and Christmas and the weather and parenting and getting out here on Sunday morning and paying the bills and church and we get stressed out and worn out and tired out and peopled out. But do you understand, church family, how little effort it is for God to be God. So little effort, C.S. Lewis talks about it. And, and here's what he says. Here's what Lewis says. He says, In himself, at home in the land of the Trinity, he is sovereign of a far greater realm. Um, uh, Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? The answer is nope, nothing. It's just not hard for God to be God. At home in the land of the Trinity, he is sovereign of a far greater realm. And then, and then we get this picture. Lewis gives us this picture. Imagine God holding in his hand an object. All right, I've got a set of keys here. In his hand. Here it is. And Lewis says that this object here equals all that has been made. Everything. In heaven and on earth, everything. It's right here in God's hand. And he can just, he's in the land of the Trinity. And so he just puts this object in his pocket and he walks about and doing what he does. But pulls it out. Here it is. And all that has been made. There it is. God who needs nothing loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect 
them. God sings over us because of all that he's done for us, because he's a mighty God. It is, it is no effort for God to be who he is, you see. He sings because of what he's done. But we, we haven't really gotten to the heart of this passage, have we? Because we're going, well, why has he done all this for us? Okay, we know why he sings over us. He sings over us because of what he's done for us. But why did he do all this for us? And Lewis talks about this, and Zephaniah tells us directly. It's back there in verse 17. With his love. Do you see that? He sings over us because of what he's done for us on account of his love for us. He delights in you. He will quiet you with his love. The essence of, the essence of God is self-giving, self-sharing, self-pouring love. God, God's love is what drives God to do what he does. God's love is the energy behind his work. And it's not just that God loves as if that's an activity of God. God loves because he's a lover. And God's, and God's love, church, I believe, is one of the hardest truths for us to believe. Now, we say it. Pastors get up and preach it. God is love. And yet, it's one of those truths we have no problem saying publicly, and yet, at the same time, it's one of those truths we have such a hard time believing privately. You know? And I'll tell you this, it's a dirty little secret with pastors. How easy it is for pastors to get up and say, it's a personal confession here. It's easy for me to get up and say, God loves you, but to look at myself in the mirror and to say, do I really believe that God loves me? Huh? And yet, of all that we say about God, what could be more central than God is love? I mean, when you think about creation, when you think about the incarnation, Jesus being born, Christmas, when we think about the crucifixion, when we think about the resurrection, none of that makes sense apart from God's love. None of it. And, and yet, at the same time, we publicly proclaim it, yet privately, privately we doubt it about ourselves. And I, I don't think there's another attribute of God we find more difficult to believe than God is love. I mean, when we say God is holy, who says, well, I'm not sure about that? Or when we say something like God is almighty or God is all-knowing, I mean, who says, well, I doubt that? But when we say God is love, God is a lover, God loves me. You know, for some reason, we're just not so sure, are we? And we don't doubt that God loves others, but too often we doubt if God loves us. We, we think he endures us, or he tolerates us, but that he loves us. What about you? When you think about how God thinks about you, what do you think? When God sets his mind on you, what's in your mind about that? When God meditates on you, how do you think he feels? When he opens his mouth to speak of you, in your mind, what 
does he say? A pastor asks a church member this very question, and the church member snaps back, well, he thinks badly of me. He repels me. He's disappointed in me. He thinks, yuck. And then the pastor reads Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And the church member, with tear-rimmed eyes, says he sings. He sings. Yes. Yes, in, in verses 14 to 20, God's punishment is replaced with God's presence. In, in 14 to 20, God's, God's anger at sin is replaced by God's pleasure at our joy. In verses 14 to 20, our fear is replaced by God's rejoicing in the new heavens and the new earth when God reverses the Tower of Babel, when he gathers the nations and gives them one language, when we worship together, verse 8, shoulder to shoulder, when God restores the new Jerusalem, when he remakes Eden in heaven, do you understand? We're not going to be the only ones doing the singing. God will be doing the singing I promise you, Zephaniah promises that God can sing too. Have you ever had anybody rejoice over you with singing lately? Hmm? Has somebody just walked up to you and they're so happy to see you, they just burst out in song? Hmm? God loves you so much that he will rejoice over you with singing in the way that a mom does a little child. That's why Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And some of, some men may say, well, you know, that's, men don't get into that kind of a picture, Randy. You know, because we're men. Listen. Look up here. Dying men do. Dying men do. Several years ago, um, Sarah's uncle, Mac, Merle McDonald, he was a legend at Defiance College in Defiance, Ohio. He was a basketball coach for 20-some-odd years and had a great record and uh, then retired and and he had cancer. And they sent him home to die. And the family was gathered. And Sarah went. Brandon was just a baby at the time, our younger son. And she went to Uncle Mac's bedside. And she sang over him. She sang Amazing Grace. Such a solid man of God, Uncle Mac was. Such a solid believer. She sang, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Dying men 
do. And the truth be told, church family, all of us live to have someone sing over us. All of us do. In fact, right now, you are pursuing and chasing a voice that you hope will sing over you. Right now. All of us are. And and why do you think we stray from God? It's because we go looking for uh, that voice in all of the wrong places... We desperately want the voice's approval. We want to be sung to and sung over. And Zephaniah tells us that there's only one voice that matters, only one. Our singing God rejoices because of all he's done for us, because he loves us, and he demonstrated that love. He showed that love. He showed that love by removing the one thing that keeps us from hearing his song. What is that? Look at verse 15. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15 says, The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. And how did he do this? How did he do this? Back to verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. God is with you. Emmanuel. He is mighty to save. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. Zephaniah says that God will come into our midst as a king. He will come into our midst as a mighty warrior in a rescue operation only he can pull off, where he removes the punishment and he removes our fear. And the ultimate expression of this love was when God himself in Jesus came to satisfy his perfect justice by substituting himself as the penalty for our sin. And this he did through the cross. And that's why Charles Spurgeon, a pastor, once said, Jesus is God and man in one person. Man, that he may feel our woes. God, that he may help us out of them. Paul put it this way. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, don't you hear what Zephaniah is telling us? (laughs) When you take our singing God, who is our mighty God, who is our loving God, who is our dying God, who is our rising God, what does that equal? It equals joyful church. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Is it any wonder then that, according to one scholar, Zephaniah 3.17 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave. And he gave, and we are joyful. And you see, as a result, you see the whole picture? This is our destiny. This is our church's vision. This is why we passionately pursue Christ. Because as a joyful church, the nations are gathered. That's what's, verses, that's what's in verses 8 and 9 and 10 from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, Cush was in, was, was in the Sudan area, in Africa. So, so the nations will gather, one multinational, multiracial people. God loves the nations gathered from every nation 
in one language, one unified language, and worshiping together shoulder to shoulder with no fear whatsoever. This is the, this, and he is what's brought this to us. This is why we have such joy. You see that quote at the bottom of uh, your outline on page two? It, this, when Jesus, this is, when Jesus judges our imperfections, I mean, he does it with such compassion that he releases us from the fear that we must pretend to be better than we are. See, this, this is not a place where we all pretend to be better than we are because we all know what we've done and we all know who God is and what he's done. Jesus assures us that if we will be honest with God, God will be gracious with us. And at the moment we enter into a gracious relationship with God, we not only fall heir to the promises of the gospel, but we're ready to accept our present duties in the kingdom of love. And, and our pride has been dethroned, and, and because of that, we're able to accept a much more modest view of ourselves. We're delivered from the error of thinking that we need to prove ourselves all the time. This cannot be a place where you feel like you have to prove yourselves. The only one who's done the proving is Jesus. And kindness and truth become signs of status. That's, that's the status here. Destructive anxiety cannot overwhelm us, for we are content to leave the work of salvation to God. You will be, you will be emotionally and spiritually healthy if you will stop going to all of the other voices in our world to try to get them to sing over you. See, that, this is why some of you are not emotionally healthy or spiritually healthy, because you're, you're trying to go after these other voices. And if you will but listen to the voice of our Heavenly Father, you will have health. And then you will truly be able to serve and do, because when you do, see, we, you, you will then become to the world what God has been to us. And then you will trust that whatever you do is his work through you, not your work. And for our joy and his glory, you see. Now, in preaching classes, right about this time in the sermon, they teach us to, you know, tell you what to do now. Okay, here's the application. Here's how to apply this. This is what God wants you to do, all right? So here's the application. What does God want me to do? Nothing! Nothing! Don't do anything! <laughs> See, the whole point of the passage is for you to be quiet. Question. Is your heart quiet today? Have you, have you been so busy pursuing and chasing that your heart's just not quiet. Do you live like God's joy is all over you, or are you trying to chase after someone else's joy? And, and now you don't have any. You who are so quick to speak of God's love for others, why are you so slow to believe it yourself? Church family, believe it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our singing doing, mighty, loving, 
dying, rising God wants to quiet your heart so that you will hear his voice. Let's pray.